Well, hey, guys, it is good to be with you this morning. If you do not know me, my name is Sam. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And uh, if I have not met you yet, uh, I hope to meet you after the service. But um, uh, if you do not know me, that's who I am. And uh, this morning, we are turning our focus toward Easter. We just finished a series in Proverbs, and now we are starting a new series in which we are turning our gaze toward the cross toward the empty tomb. We are anticipating uh, that great celebration on Easter. So we are starting this sermon series, Resurrected. And this series is going to look at the key players who turned Jesus over to death. We're going to look at these different characters and we're going to see how they responded to Jesus, but more so how Jesus's resurrection empowers us to respond to Jesus differently than they did. So I'm very excited about this series, and uh, if you're tuning in with us at home, good to have you here as well. Uh, before we dive in, though, I want to commend something to you. If you uh, are not following us on social media, if, this, if you're not getting the newsletter, I want to encourage you to do so. We sent out this past week a Lent devotional, uh, basically a free daily devotional. You sign up for it at gospelandlife.com. I want to encourage you to take part in that. Um, you know, Lent is a great time of the year. It's a time that we kind of prepare our hearts for Easter. And so uh, if you don't already have a Lent devotional, I just want to commend that to you. Uh, like I said, it's in the newsletter. It's on social media. If you don't have either of those, uh, you can just go to gospelandlife.com and it's there. And that's put out by Tim Keller. So I just want to commend that to you. Um, but now let us dive into our passage. So will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 26. You can turn there in your Bibles. Verses 57 through 68. Beginning with verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that, that, that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it? That struck you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, let me ask you a question to start us off this morning. Have you ever in your life cried out, shouted, or just even thought, this is not fair? Maybe you did this when you were a kid. I know I did. This warm weather has got me thinking about when I was a kid. I grew up just up the street, and we would ride our bikes in the summer when you know, the sun is out until like, you know, us neighborhood kids, the sun's out till like 8.30. We'd ride our bikes around the neighborhood, and I remember I would always cry out, it's not fair, when our parents would come out and tell us to come in. We'd be like, the sun is still out. It's not fair. Let us stay outside. Um, Maybe you have, ex have experiences like that in your childhood, or maybe you're experiencing that with your child right now. Um, 
But my guess is that we we all also feel these feelings when we're adults. We have these moments where we see something or we experience something and we just go, this is not fair. Maybe life hands us lemons and we're just like, why is it this is not fair? I think if there's one thing that can unite us sometimes, it's our desire for fairness and for justice. Uh, One thing that gets us going is when we see something that we perceive as injustice, something that is unfair. This morning, Matthew wants us to see that there is an injustice happening in this passage. He wants us to see something that is unfair. He wants us to see that Jesus is on trial. Jesus, our Savior, is on trial. And that he is condemned wrongly. But he wants us to see three specific things. These are our main points this morning. If you are a note taker, here they are. Number one, Jesus is the Son of Man. We're going to go through these in a second. But number one, Jesus is the Son of Man. Number two, the Son of Man is rejected. And number three, the Son of Man now reigns. Beginning with number one, Jesus is the Son of Man. Let's dive into our passage. A couple minutes ago, we just read possibly the most um, gross and unjust trial of all time. Maybe of all time. Um, It starts with Jesus being brought in. He's under arrest. But he's, not, but he's brought in by a mob. We learned that from the previous passage. There's a mob, they come, they arrest him, they're wielding clubs and swords, and he's brought into the high priest. So he's not even convicted of anything yet, and he's brought in by a mob. Then we read in verse 59, the chief priests call all these false witnesses against Jesus. People are just getting up and making up stuff, just, te- just trying to find some reason to convict him. Doesn't matter if it's true or not. And then after that, in verse 61, we read that two come forward with another accusation. They say, Jesus said he is able, quote, able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Now, Jesus did say something like that, but if you go read it in John 2, we see that they're taking Jesus' words out of context. He was referring to his own body. So Jesus' words are taken out of context. He's falsely accused. He's brought in by a mob. Can you imagine if you witnessed a trial like this today? Like, imagine you get called in for jury duty, you show up when you're supposed to, you, you take your seat, and the defendant is brought in not by the, you know, of their own free will or by the proper authorities, but by a mob carrying guns. And imagine that testimonies start being thrown at this defendant, it's obvious that they're all lies, and you're just sitting there and you're thinking, am I the only one seeing this? No evidence is given, the testimonies are not corroborated, the defendant's words are twisted, you would be livid, right? You, something inside you would be crying out, this is wrong. This is unfair. Now, can you imagine being the defendant? If this were any of us on trial, I, I highly doubt we'd be able to hold our tongue. We'd be loudly defending ourselves and saying, this is not, this is not true. But as we're going to see, Jesus is oddly silent. In fact, Jesus is silent through all of this until Caiaphas stands up and looks at Jesus and says in verse 62, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men men testify against you? Basically just saying like, aren't you going to defend yourself? But Jesus, again, oddly stays silent. So Caiaphas leans in. If you like to watch crime documentaries or police TV shows or, or whatever, you know, this is the moment where like the interrogator like, you know, leans in on the guy to get him to confess. Caiaphas leans in and he says, verse 63, I adjure you, Jesus. That means like, adjure you means like, tell me and swear to me that you're telling me the truth. I adjure you, Jesus, 
by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, why does Caiaphas ask this? Well, Jesus has been ministering for about three years at this point. He's healed people. He has exercised demons. He has performed miracles. He's captivated the people with his teaching and his signs. He's even raised a man from the dead. And now Caiaphas has this man in front of him, this man he wants to get rid of. And he needs a way to get rid of him. So he wants for him to commit blasphemy. He wants him to acknowledge that he is divine in some way. Then he can condemn Jesus. And in response, Jesus speaks for the first time. He says, verse 64, he says, you have said so. What you have said is true, Caiaphas, says Jesus. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on, rest of verse 64, he says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power in coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus saying? We were talking about the Son of God, now Jesus is talking about the Son of Man. Is that somebody different? Jesus, what are you saying? Well, the Son of Man is the Son of God. They're one and the same. But Jesus is choosing his words very carefully because there is a prophecy in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And here's what it says. This is Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 through 14. Notice the similarity between what it says and Jesus says. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus, prophesies that one who looks like a son of man will come from God and receive dominion over all, will bring the kingdom of God. Friends, Jesus is this son of man. Jesus demonstrated that he has dominion over all. If you read his life in the Gospels, you see that Jesus has dominion over creation. He healed the sick. He turned water into wine. He calmed the sea. Jesus showed his dominion over the evil spirits of the world when he freed people from their dominion over them. He exercised them, got rid of them. Jesus showed his dominion over life and death itself when he forgave sins and raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is the divine son of man, sent from God, Lord over all. And the tragic irony of this passage is that Caiaphas, the high priest, the man who is tasked with going into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, does not recognize the Holy of Holies standing right in front of him. And friends, I want to ask you this morning, do you recognize who Jesus is? I know that many of us in this room are Christians, but this question is for you too, brothers and sisters. It's for all of us. I ask this question because I love this time of year. There's graduations coming up, there's celebrations, it's wedding season a lot of the time, it's great weather, and sometimes we just get so busy that we don't pause and just really consider, who is Jesus? 
So I ask that just so that we may pause and remember Jesus is the Son of Man. But Caiaphas does not recognize this. In fact, Jesus' response causes Caiaphas to flip out because Caiaphas knows the Old Testament. He knows what Jesus is talking about, and he knows that Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am bringing the kingdom. And so Caiaphas, it says in verse 65, he tears his robes and he asks the room, what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And Jesus is condemned to death. And this brings us to our second point. Number two, the son of man is rejected. Jesus is condemned and our passage passage ends with just a, a brutal conclusion. Jesus is spit on, he's beaten, he's slapped, he's mocked and made fun of. He is utterly rejected. It's a foretaste of what is to come on Good Friday. And now there's a question I've put off, and I've put off answering until now because some of, you, some of you are probably wondering it. Why do Caiaphas and the other religious leaders, like, why are they doing this? Why do they want Jesus gone so bad? Why are these men so intent on condemning Jesus that they are resorting to lying, which is breaking the ninth commandment, and violence? These are supposed to be men of God's law. Why are they acting like this? What would cause them to not just not recognize Jesus, but also reject him? I'll give you one word answer. Envy. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at these different characters, and we're going to pinpoint a reason why they rejected Jesus. Jesus is rejected in this case with the religious leaders because of envy. And we know this because in the next chapter after Jesus is condemned, they take him to Pilate, who's the Roman governor. And Pilate, as he's talking with Jesus, he, we read this, Genesis chapter 27, verse 18. We read, we read that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now, Pilate had to be a shrewd man. He was a Roman. He played the political game. He could read somebody. And he saw these religious leaders, and he saw through them. He saw this is less about Jesus being divine and more about them envying Jesus. But why would they be envious? Well, to put it simply, Jesus had intruded into their world. He had come into their world. I mean, these were the men who led the people of Israel, who maintained the law and taught the law. They held influential positions of power. Jesus begins his ministry, and they start seeing all the people that are supposed to be listening to them start listening to Jesus. All the people that are supposed to be seeking them, they start seeking Jesus. They start seeing their power slide away from them. And Jesus also does things. He kind of rubs them the wrong way sometimes. Like he eats with sinners. They didn't like that. He heals on the Sabbath. They didn't like that. And Jesus criticizes them. He's kind of like a thorn in their flesh sometimes. You know, he tells them, you, you don't love people well because you're so consumed with, um, with, with obeying the laws. He tells that to the religious, religious leaders. And uh, multiple times the religious leaders go to Jesus. They ask him questions to try to trip him up or make him look foolish. And Jesus gives answers that ends up making them look foolish in front of the crowds. So in short, Jesus comes into their world like a wrecking ball and just blows it apart. They see their influence disappearing. They see their people flocking to him and their hearts are filled with envy. They want their influence back and they want it unthreatened. So they unjustly arrest him, falsely accuse him, and wrongly condemn him to death. 
Jesus is rejected because of envy. And now this is where I want us to see ourselves in this passage. This is where it turns toward us. Because we might be tempted to think that if we were there, we would be the hero in the story. We would be the one who stands up in the council and said, obviously this is the son of God, we can't do this. The truth is though, we also reject the son of man because of envy. Let me explain what I mean. I'm gonna start with a quote here. John Stott, who's a brilliant uh, theologian, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but he wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. I recommend it to you. It's a great book. It's thick, just warning. But um, in, in his book, he has this quote talking about um, the religious leaders in envy. He says, we, us, resent Jesus's intrusions into our privacy, his demand for our homage, his expectation of our obedience, Why can't he mind his own business, we ask petulantly, and leave us alone? To which he instantly replies that we are his business and that he will never leave us alone. So we too perceive him as a threatening rival who disturbs our peace, upsets our status quo, undermines our authority, and diminishes our self-respect. We too want to get rid of him. Now that's a sobering statement and it might kind of hit you like a truck. Um... And if you're kind of wondering what Stott is getting at, Stott is drawing attention to the fact that our sinful flesh can become frustrated with Jesus in our life. Think about it this way. You look at your neighbor's new house or their new toy, their new boat, their new hunting property or their their mini vacations, whatever it is, and you are filled with envy. You start to think, you know, if I didn't have to give to the church and give to those in need, I bet I could afford that thing I want. If Jesus wasn't in the picture then I could do what I wanted with my money. That goes for time as well. If I didn't have to go to the church, then I could do what I wanted with my time. Or think about it this way. You resent Jesus because of his teaching on certain controversial topics like sexuality and marriage. You think, Jesus, you're making me the weird one at the table, the weird one in the classroom, the weird, you're making me have tough conversations with people that I don't wanna have. You get frustrated and you envy those who can just roll with what culture says is true. Parents, you become filled with envy when you look at those parents who don't have the task of discipling their children to know Christ. You can almost envy those parents who just let the world disciple their kids. It's easier. You're the weird parent that sticks out, that makes sure your kid is in church, that indoctrinates them instead of just leaving them to the world instead of leaving their faith up to chance. That's hard. I was talking with a parent this week about that very thing. Do you see what envy can do, friends? Envy turns Jesus into this weight we have to drag around behind us like a ball and chain. It can turn Jesus into this person you have to go see once a week, into this annoying intrusion in your life that you just have to deal with. Do you see how our sinful flesh and the enemy can twist Jesus in our mind from the son of man to an annoyance? Sometimes we are not that unlike the religious leaders. We can find ourselves looking longingly at the world and rejecting Jesus out of envy for the world. Now that's the bad news. Let's move to the good news. I said that we, excuse me, I said that we would come back to the fact that Jesus was, for the most part, silent during his trial. And think about that again. If any of us were there, we would not be silent. We would be defending ourselves, doing everything we could. Um, 
But Jesus is oddly silent. And just before this passage, when Jesus is arrested, there's a pretty epic scene. Um, When Jesus is arrested, one of his disciples actually takes his sword out and cuts the ear off of a guy that's trying to arrest Jesus. And Jesus um, stops his disciple and rebukes him. says, stop it. Put your sword back. And in chapter 26, verse 53, he says this. He says to his disciple, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus tells his disciple, this is supposed to happen. This is for your benefit. Put the sword away. And Jesus' silence in this moment tells us this is supposed to happen. Jesus is letting it happen. This is for our benefit. This is the plan of God. The Son of Man is not just rejected, he must be rejected. And this brings us to our third and final point. The Son of Man now reigns. Jesus goes on. He dies a terrible death. But then he rises from the grave and ascends into heaven. Those are three significant events that all say something for us. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. First is crucifixion. The Bible tells us that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has destroyed your sin and its consequences. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, like the ring of power that is destroyed, our sin is destroyed and we are no longer bound to it or its consequences, its dominion over us. This means that when we sin and reject God out of envy, we find that forgiveness has already been offered to us. Praise God for that. But then Jesus rises from the grave. There's the resurrection. And this is more good news. See, the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus once again has all authority over life and death. Even the grave could not hold him. And Paul comments on this in Romans. He says in chapter six, verses six and seven, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul tells us that we, when we place our faith in Christ, we die. Our old self, our, old, our sin, everything is nailed to the cross. It's gone. It's dead forever. But not only that, we are now free from sin. There's a new life that we step into. We become, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, new creations. We begin to walk in resurrection life. Like the caterpillar that emerges from its cocoon, we become a butterfly. We become absolutely different through Christ. Something new is formed in us. There's a new life in us. Now spiritually we are new, but our flesh is still fallen. We're still prone to sin in this life because our flesh is fallen. It's awaiting our bodily resurrection when Jesus comes back. But until then, so until then, we must guard ourselves against sin because here's the deal. Though we are made new, ongoing sin in your life, intentional sin, straying from God, those kinds of things will make your relationship with Jesus dislikable and miserable. And this is especially true of envy. The Bible teaches us that envy is destructive. It it, it destroys relationships. It hurts relationships. Cain was envious of his brother Abel in Genesis 4. He was envious of God's approval of Abel, so he killed Abel. Saul was envious of the praise David received, so Saul tried to kill David. The Pharisees were envious of Jesus, so they handed him over to death. Envy is a pathway to resentment, 
in hatred. Not as, serious, not as serious as an example, but one from my own life. When Julie and I were friends, we were working at camp together, and uh, we weren't really romantically interested yet. I was just like kind of starting to think about her. I was like, yeah, she's pretty cool. Um, but I was thinking about, man, I'm going to ask her after camp. But then I heard that she was thinking about some other guy that we were working with. And, oh, man, I was filled with so much envy. I was like, oh, come on, no. Um, it's okay. I got her in the end, so I win. Um, but that's what envy does. It changes our perception of people. If we're envious of something, it affects our relationship with them. I was envious of this other guy. Envy hampers relationships, especially our relationship with God. Have you ever wondered why sometimes Jesus or a certain teaching of his or maybe what he's calling you to do feels like such a burden, like you just don't want to do it? It is because you are a new creation. Your old self is gone. So now when you turn away from God and try to go back to your old things, there's nothing there. You are a new creation. You're actually, when you turn away from God, you're actually denying who you are now because you are Christ. There's nothing there. There's nothing of your old self is still there. This is why you feel guilt when you sin. This is why you feel guilt or feel miserable when you don't live in obedience to Christ. This is why there's that nagging thing that, that is like, you know, it's, let's say you, you skip church or something. There's why there's that nagging thought. It's because there's something inside you. Your new nature, your new creation is, is crying out for God. It wants to praise God. It wants to love God. It wants to love others. If you are living a faith that is miserable or just seems like a burden it might just be because you are living contrary to your new nature. You're a butterfly trying to be a caterpillar again. Friends, there is something, if, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then there is something that wants to get out to love God and to love others, but envy and other sins pull us away. They fill our life with things that may be good, not necessarily evil, but all of those things cause us to end up denying our true self. Our life becomes so full that we don't have room to love God and love others. And as a result, our faith just feels like this tug of war back and forth. It becomes a burden. Our faith becomes a burden to be carried rather than a relationship to be enjoyed. So what is the solution for this? Well, I think the solution is found in the third major event, the ascension. Jesus rises from the grave and a short time later he ascends and uh, this is where, um, this is what Jesus says in verse 64 when he's talking to Caiaphas. He says, Jesus said he would be, quote, seated at the right hand of power and that he will be seen coming on the clouds of heaven. Where is the Son of Man, church? He is reigning with God the Father right now. As we speak and sit here in this room and I'm talking and you're sitting there, Jesus is reigning, Lord over all. And the solution to our, when we feel that our faith is just burdensome is to look to where him, where he is reigning. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, another great book, he writes this. He says, the people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have, but who, excuse me, but who have been mastered by one great thing. The solution to a faith that is burdensome and filled with envy for the world is to turn your gaze to the throne where the Son of Man reigns.
Turn your gaze to the throne. Put him in the center of your life. Recognize him for the source of all power and all wisdom and all love that he is, church. Let me ask you, do you want to be a good parent? Kneel before the throne. Do you want to be a good employee or a good boss? Kneel before the throne. Do you want to be a good friend or a good spouse? Kneel before the throne. Do you want a faith that fills you up, fills your spirit up, instead of feeling like a burden? Kneel before the throne in your life. Get your eyes on the reigning son of man. He is alive. As we close out here, I just want to give you some thoughts for application and first, I just want to give you a question to consider. And believe me when I say I give you this question in love. I, I don't say it so that you'll ask yourself and guilt yourself. I give you this question because I want you to just do some honest reflection and be honest with yourself. Here's the question. Consider this. Is Jesus a burden to me? Ask yourself that question. This is your, you can do this tonight for homework. You can write it down now and think about it. But Because if the answer is yes, if he is, then I think there's two things that are possible. Number one, excuse me. Number one, if Jesus is a burden, you may just not have have never known him. If Jesus is a burden to you, if you have no desire to obey, no desire to know him, you know a lot about him, but you have no desire to do anything for God or grow in holiness or anything at all, it it may just be that Jesus is a burden because you don't know him. Maybe you grew up in church, but you've never actually trusted in him and known his love and his forgiveness of sins for you. Faith shows itself in works. So if that's you, I want to encourage you, maybe for the first time, recognize who Jesus is for the first time. The son of man sent from God to save us from sin, your sin. And I want to encourage you, if that is you, trust in him. Don't just know him, trust him. Follow him. And if you want to talk more about following Jesus and what that looks like, please um, come up afterward. I'd love to talk about that. So that's one possibility. Um, But if you answer yes to that question, is Jesus a burden to you? The other possibility is this, that you are living against your new nature. You're living contrary to the work that God has done in your life. God has made you a new creation, and you keep trying to go the other way, and there's nothing there. And so you feel like Jesus is a bit of a burden Maybe because envy or some other sin has rooted itself in your life and this has made Jesus a wall to your happiness. Jesus is holding you back from what truly makes you happy. If this is you, then I want to beg you to kill that sin. This is the second application. First, consider that question. Second, kill sin. Kill envy. I know we have a lot of hunters here. It's Arkansas. Like you kill a deer or a turkey or whatever you hunt, kill sin in your life. Hunt it down, root it out, get it out. Sin will make, if if you have ongoing sin in your life, when you're walking with Christ, it will be very hard to enjoy your relationship with God. God wants to build his kingdom in you and through you, and that cannot happen when you are living in ongoing, intentional, passive sin. Kill it, get it out, root it out like you're gardening, pull it up by the roots. Do what you need to do. I would tell you, make it a part of your daily walk with Christ. Pray for strength. God has given you what you need. He's given you his spirit. You have the power to get rid of it. You need to tap into it. Pray for strength. Ask for accountability. Do whatever you need to do. Get sin out of your life. So that, keep the end in mind, so that you may enjoy your relationship with Jesus. 
and have a faith that fills you up. Third, walk the hard path. Walk the hard path. The Christian life is not an easy life. It's one of denial. It's one where we, um, we don't always agree with the world. But its rewards are great. I want to encourage you, envy the things that are to come. Store up for yourself, as Jesus says, treasures in heaven. Do not envy this world. Enjoy this world. God has blessed us with so many great things to enjoy. This afternoon, I'm going to go enjoy this weather. Enjoy this world, but do not envy this world. For Jesus is making a better world. Envy the world to come, the things of God to come, the treasure to come. So walk the hard path. And then fourth and finally, we'll wrap up with this. I want to encourage you to worship. Specifically, I mean, worship is all of our life, but in this case, I want to encourage you specifically, sing. Envy is dangerous because it takes our eyes off the reigning son of man on his throne, and it brings us down and makes us focus on all the things in the world. Singing, worship, directs our attention back up to the reigning son of man. When we engage in worship and we sing, it draws our attention back to the throne, reminds us of who we are, encourages us to live that out. So sing. And we're gonna sing one more song. Church, let's praise God who is on the throne, who has saved us, given us new life, and is holding unimaginable treasure for us at the end of this life. Let us sing, but first let us pray. Father, thank you for this church. Father, thank you for every man and woman in this room. I pray, Lord, that you would watch over them, bless them, and keep them this week. Father, we come before you and we pray, Lord, that you would show us where envy is in our life. Where are we denying you? Where are we desiring the world over you? I pray that you would show us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to recognize that you have made us a new creation. Our souls long for you. I pray that we would feed our souls. Lord, help us to love you and to love others. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would do the hard work of rooting sin out of our life, not just because we're Christians and that's what we do, but because that is what allows us to enjoy a relationship with you. It allows our faith to be this exciting, joyful journey. So, Father, give these men and women and myself strength to root out any sin that is there. Pinpoint it for us. Help us get it out. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we go forth from this place, that our relationship with, with you would not be um, a burden, but would be a joyful relationship that we are blessed by every single day. In your name I pray, amen.